346 BC, Philip II, king of Macedon and father of Alexander the Great, had just conquered all of northern Greece when he turned his armies south towards Sparta. In a message to those city leaders, he informed them, you are advised to submit without further delay, for if I bring my army into your land, I will destroy your farms, slay your people, and raise your city. The Spartans replied with a famous single word response, if. That single word changed the would-be conquerors to consider what it would take to bring their army to Sparta, and they realized that the premise of their threat was entirely hollow, and it turns out they left Sparta alone. In healthcare, if we only had one problem to fix and perfectly effective cures, if diseases presented the same way and could be easily identified, if it didn't involve so many people and so many systems, if there were clearly established best practices, I am confident that we could really consistently deliver safe and efficient and equitable care. But there's that word again, if, that is a fantasy. Did you know that people are different? They don't always have the same problems. The diseases don't always have the same symptoms and findings. The treatments are often complex, involve many people, interacting systems, and they involve risk. We're not working on machines with manuals in an efficient workshop. There is so much we don't know, despite many years of training and incredible scientific advances, that I don't think it would be stretching at all to say that delivering healthcare is one of the most complex endeavors of man. And in fact, I don't stand alone there. Peter Drucker, one of the best known and most widely influential thinkers and writers on the subject of management theory, famously called hospitals the most complex form of human organization that we have ever attempted to manage. So what does it take to become and stay safe in a high risk, high complexity, and increasingly high pace endeavor? Experts agree that one fundamental requirement is that an organization have an absolute preoccupation with safety built into its culture. Building a culture of safety requires deliberate, strategic, persistent, and hard work. And there's a lot known about the fundamental requirements for building those safety cultures. But what if your organization is a long way from having a safety culture? Today, we're going to talk with a physician who's dedicated a lot of her career towards improving safety culture, both at her and at other institutions. She has a lot to tell us about implementing a practice that's helped a lot of organizations improve their safety culture. Welcome to Key into Quality, a Mayo Clinic podcast focusing on healthcare quality, experience, and affordability trends and solutions. This podcast aims to help you take some of those first steps towards understanding and improving quality challenges in your organization. Thanks a lot for joining us. I'm Dr. Tim Morgenthaler, a professor of medicine here at Mayo Clinic College of Medicine, and I'm a vice chair of Mayo Clinic Quality. Co-hosting today's conversation is Sherry Nemec. Sherry? Hello, everyone. I'm Sherry Nemec, Consultation and Relationship Manager for Quality at Mayo Clinic. You know, Dr. Morgenthaler, when you started out today, I was thinking, am I in the right podcast? (laughs) 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 It was a great story. I love, I always love how you start these out, but you're just so right because there's a lot of ifs in this work and lessons to be learned in our journey to deliver safe and effective care. Yeah, I mean, I, I think all of us become very frustrated that we can't do better and better. It just seems like, well, what is the problem? But I love that story with the if, because so much is predicated on, well, you know, just how hard of a job is this? Well, today we're really lucky to be joined by a colleague from Mayo Clinic, Florida, Dr. Jennifer Cowart. Jennifer, welcome to our podcast. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your current position and what you'd like us to know about how you got there. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for inviting me to come speak to you today. I'm a hospitalist with an internal medicine background and training. I've been at Mayo Clinic Florida now seven years, and I have been the patient safety officer for our Mayo Clinic Florida site since 2019. We have only a short time with you. I'd love to pick your brain for even longer, but let's start with this. You're talking to us today about implementation of safety huddles or maybe refinement of safety huddles. How did you first get interested in this particular project and how did you begin to form your thoughts up about it? Yeah, I had been interested in safety huddles for a long time. We had a lot of training on this when I did the chief residency and quality and, and safety program at the VA, which was my fellowship that I did before coming to Mayo and where I got my background. So I had learned about safety huddles from a wide variety of institutions like VA, DOD, AHRQ has a nice pathway for safety huddles. Of course, there's non-healthcare organizations that do huddles and briefings. I had the opportunity to attend some high reliability huddles at Cleveland Clinic and other places. So I'd been interested for a while. We had talked about starting one at Mayo Clinic Florida prior to covid and I'm not sure we really knew what problem we wanted to solve with it. It was like, ooh, we want to huddle, but I'm not sure we really knew why. And then, of course, with the public health emergency, all hands on deck, trying to take care of folks in the, in the heart of the pandemic. And so this work ended up being deferred for a while. But when we came out from that worst part of the pandemic, we noticed a few challenges we thought we could solve with this. So one, you know, we hired some new staff. These staff were orienting largely virtually for safety purposes, and they missed a lot of our culture training that we had done and so carefully done prior to the public health emergency. And we felt that that was a real opportunity for us to re visit that culture. And then we had reinstituted our listening walk rounds monthly, going to every unit, hearing what people had to say. We noticed opportunities to improve not only the culture, but also to empower people on how they could fix things in their own units. Not everything has to be escalated to a central command body. There's a lot of things that folks on the front line can do to fix stuff but they just didn't have the tools and we were identifying a lot of just do it items. So I think those two things kind of percolated around the safety huddle idea had never died. We revisited it, ultimately ended up implementing it to improve some of these items. So safety huddles obviously take the engagement and participation of a number of people to be effective. So who did you bring on board then to start revitalizing this work? So first off, I was extremely fortunate to have a dedicated ear in the chief quality officer and quality administrator in Florida who also had bought into the idea that this could be a tool to use to improve our safety culture. They really helped put this thing forward engage all the leadership that we needed. You really need help from the C-suite, from high-level administration, because you're going to need resources to implement such a huddle. So we needed senior leadership support. Next, we had a number of mid to upper level operations and nursing administrators who helped come together to draft the huddle structure. Many of these folks had actually come from other organizations or other parts of the enterprise where they had experience with these huddles. So they were able to tell us what worked, what didn't work, what they liked about their huddle, why they thought a huddle was the right tool for us. And we were able to use all of this advice and wisdom to incorporate into our huddle structure. 
Then we engaged with other Mayo sites who had instituted huddles who were extremely generous with their time and their resources. They let us listen in on their huddle. They let us look at their scripts. They sent us their documents. They told us this is what's working and this is what we want to improve about our own huddle. We took all of this into account and just tried to drink from that fire hose, just learn from everyone's experience before we opened up our huddle. I love that you reached out and uh, yeah. uh, learned from others and, instead of having to learn the hard lessons yourself. You know, you mentioned resources. I'm sure that everybody would understand that one huge resource is time. You know, people actually have to take time. What other resources are you thinking of when you're considering implementation or augmentation of safety huddles? Great question. So time is the key one, as you said, but it's the right people's time. So we needed an administrative resource to run the huddle and to take the minutes and send the follow-up email. So the way that we were able to get that is we have our administrator on call each week, run the huddle for the week that they're on call. And then that person every day, Monday through Friday at 11 o'clock, it's always the same time. They run the huddle, they take some brief notes on anything that's a just do it item or something that's a referral for afterwards. It's kind of our two big categories. And then they will send a brief follow-up email by close of business back to key leaders and the nursing units and administrators so that we all know what happened that day and what we need to follow up on. So that, that key administrative time resource was huge. Right. We also needed secretarial support. This is a big calendar invite. There's a big yeah. distribution list that has to be managed. That was actually one of our key things. We said this needs to be supported by someone who has that time to manage this big calendar. So that was an ask that we were able to get. We needed a room to host the huddle in. And then we did use Teams, which was the platform we were using at our site for a lot of our virtual meetings. The benefit of Teams is that we have the ability to have the group chat running afterwards. We can share documents and comments even after the huddle for the day has run. Mm -hmm. And so that use of that resource has allowed us to do a, a hybrid in-person and virtual meeting. So we generally have anywhere from 10 to 20 folks who attend in-person daily and 20 plus who may attend virtually via the Teams platform. So I think that has been very successful for us, but we needed all of those tangible resources in order to make this huddle active and successful. Boy, there was some golden wisdom. This, you just it wasn't it? There. Wow. That was awesome. <laughs> so, okay, so you've got the distribution list. You've got everybody knowing you're starting this. What were some of the real big challenges and interdependencies and issues you dealt with as you started firing this thing off? So I have to be totally honest here and say I was pretty nervous when we got this thing started. It was a big change. I wasn't sure how people would take it. I wasn't sure how they would want to take this jog over to a conference room and interrupt their busy day. You know, these are some of the busiest nurse managers, administrators, people running the lab, people running risk management, people running radiology in the PACU, having to take a, a few minutes out of their day to come meet every single day. That was a huge ask. I was very worried. Is this going to work? And am I going to be, you know, drawn in effigy somewhere as this, <laughs> the person who had this thing happen? But we tried to just emphasize the why of what we were asking and really be humble and say, we want it, we want all your feedback so we can make this thing work and work better. We took that feedback over and over again to improve the huddle. We started off with a much smaller list of groups attending, and we quickly added quite a few teams that needed to come to the huddle. 
from facilities to security to the lab to risk management. We modified our feedback system to ensure we're closing the loop. I think one thing we felt early on was that we needed to build that trust in the system that things will be fixed. Even small things, they will be fixed or they will be fixed quickly. Once people started to see that, hey, I brought up that that bed over there was broken and the facilities manager sent someone right after huddle and that thing was fixed, people start to trust that the system is working and it's not a faceless entity of facilities. It's Joe in facilities who is going to send someone. And if you don't get the response that you need, you can call and have a dialogue. So I think once it, it started to snowball in a positive way, once we started building that trust that the just do it items would be fixed. And then we also have to reassure folks that the bigger stuff, the event reports, things like that, they're going to go into the right system. They're going to be dealt with and managed, may take longer than a single day, just do it. But we needed to build that trust in the little items first so that people could trust that the big stuff was also going to be fixed. Those were some of those interdependencies and things that were a year plus in. We're still working on it. This is a, a work in progress, but attendance has been great. People are still coming to the huddle. They refer to huddle frequently after the huddle. They're sharing information they learn at Huddle with their teams. We're bringing new leaders on all the time. I think it's really important. This is not one person's job to attend Huddle. It's someone from that unit or from that team has to attend the Huddle. So if I'm not there as physician leader, I need to be sure that one of my other counterparts is going to be there. And if I have anything I need to report, I have to hand that off to them so they can report it because we need that attendance. We need the, and the listening. It's not just about my report. It's about what I'm hearing from those folks. Boy, that's really incredible. That level of engagement. And I, I loved your comments too about establishing trust in the little things right away, that things just didn't go into black holes, right? That you really needed that to get that buy-in and involvement from people. So let's fast forward to today. So what do you have now? What's the current state of the Huddle Project? Yeah, our huddle turned one year old in May. It was a very proud set of parents who <laughs> celebrated that birthday. We're running Monday through Friday at 11 a.m. We don't meet on weekends and holidays currently. I already described how the structure with the administrator on call running the huddle every week, but we rotate that leadership. So we're constantly upskilling new administrators, bringing them in so that they can run that huddle. I think we have 20 plus different administrators who have run the huddle so far. We ask for a report out from all areas on the list, from nursing units, ancillary services, physician leadership, whether they have anything to report or not helps it, it keep that attendance high. Key point here, we're generally done in under 15 minutes. Every once in a while, we'll go to 20. We try to really keep the long items pushed to an offline report. People want to get in, get their pertinent information, and get back to work. And whenever we talk about what could we do to add things to the huddle, they'll say, if you want to add stuff, great, but you got to keep it short. So keep your huddle short. We did successfully add, though, some weekly information on hospital infection rates. We've started talking about mortalities. We've started talking about specimen labeling errors and lab errors. We just keep those reports pretty tight, pretty brief, and say, if you have any questions, follow up after. We do include a day since last serious harm event report from either risk management or patient safety. So we have number of days since whatever the last serious harm event may have been, and then a very brief one sentence about what that harm event was so everybody's aware. And then at the end of the day, the administrator on call sends a brief email 
incorporating that day's information and including whether or not items were a just do it, fix it that day, or something that was going to need a, a longer referral. Yeah. And now our quality administrator attends an enterprise level huddle that I believe happens once a week, and they report on events mm -hmm. from our site and learn from the other site's reports. Wow. There's a lot of information being exchanged broadly, you know, so communication, situational awareness is obviously increasing, but I'm just reflecting on a few things that you've told us over the course of this conversation. I'm going back up to part of the why, why did you start doing this post pandemic? And I heard you say you were during your walk arounds, you were seeing that things needed to be done, but people didn't seem to be empowered to just do it. And then just now, as you were explaining where things are now, I heard you say in several different ways that you were involving more and more different administrators and people and upscaling their skills. I'm just thinking that, yes, the, the safety huddle, if it's well run and the efficient exchange of information, but you're really enabling people in a more horizontal way down at the working edge of things to learn how to actually do things and, and take care of things. And, and take ownership for it at the same time that you're raising up new leaders within your organization, within our organization. When you reflect on this, I know you well enough to know that you think about this off campus. When you think about this, what do you think the impact has been and will be on the patients and the staff at Mayo Clinic of this endeavor? So we're really hoping to see improvements for our staff that then trickle down to patients as well as those items that need to be fixed or followed up for patients directly. So I think this first dovetails very, very nicely with other important culture of safety work that we're doing on our campus and across the enterprise, our listening and engagement walk rounds, expanding our culture of safety training classes for staff hired since the pandemic. All of these things are complementary of each other. One thing we've noticed in the huddle itself is an it, it improved knowledge of who everybody is and communication. There's a shared even set of jokes that take place in the huddle now. We laugh <laughs> together sometimes and people just know each other better, which was something that we needed to get back to, I think, after oh, the- Especially, pandemic. I imagine, with all the new hires that came about through the right. pandemic. New hires, new nurse managers, people rotating in leadership. We needed to get to know each other again, and that has been really huge. I would think a couple more things. So first, we are hearing about safety events in real time, including some things that may or may not have yet been put into the event reporting system. So we can encourage the use of that event reporting system so we can follow up on events afterwards. And then the last thing I want to highlight we haven't talked about yet is staff safety. So one thing that came up pretty quickly in these discussions was complex behavior on behalf of patients and visitors up to and including sometimes violence. And we quickly discovered that folks really didn't have a skill set for how to handle these situations. That has been a huge piece of work this past year. We brought security in, security engages in these conversations. Security will volunteer to go around proactively on certain situations. They will brief us afterwards on what happened. Our patient experience team comes and talks about the complex behavior team and what that reporting does. And we, I really believe in the safety without adjectives type paradigm. If our staff is safe, they can take safe care of patients. But if our staff is not safe, then they can't do that. So I think that has been another surprise to me that that was such a huge emphasis of the huddle. But I think because we kept our script fairly broad, 
it allowed people to bring these concerns forward. We didn't tell them they couldn't talk about these things and, you know, or prime them in a different direction. They brought these things just via grassroots and it gave us a real opportunity to start working on that safety. Dr. Keller, what are your next steps for safety huddles? Two things that we're continuing to strive towards. One is bringing in an ambulatory report. So what I've described right now is principally hospital or those ancillary services that span inpatient, outpatient. So trying to figure out really how to bring in the ambulatory group. It's such a different part of the practice that we're still figuring that out. But we're doing some focus groups with the various partners to figure out what would be impactful for them while keeping the huddle short. I said, we got to keep it short. And then the next thing is, I think there's an enterprise-wide conversation about some kind of a digital safety board or huddle board system where we can really start giving that information back in a huddle system or digital system to the the unit level or the clinic level and the practice level. So that's an ongoing conversation of how do we get from a more manual process with an email and a spreadsheet that someone's tracking all these items. How do we get that into a more advanced technologic solution? We can get it to people on the front line. Those are, I think, are two big things that we're striving toward now. Wow, those both sound really exciting. Earlier, Dr. Morgenthaler mentioned that he knew you well enough to know that you think about this outside of campus as well. And so curious to hear about if you have any worries or concerns or is anything in this space keep you up at night? Yeah, I think talking about that safety without adjectives thing, I do just want to emphasize one more time that staff safety is is really paradigm, mm-hmm. uh, paramount. And there's a growing number of articles out there about working in healthcare and how can we keep our healthcare workers safer and bringing those concerns front and center. I view myself as, as not just an advocate for patient safety, but also an advocate for staff. And so when staff are reporting these incidents or when they're saying they don't feel safe in a certain way, I want to continue to, to elevate that voice. I want to continue to yeah. advocate for those staff. Because I think a staff that feels secure in their work environment is going to be best able to provide the kind of emotional as well as physical care to our patients that we all want and expect at Mayo Clinic. And conversely, if if staff don't feel safe, they may not be always at their best to provide that care because they're worried about, you know, their physical safety. So I think staff safety is, is one of those things that we're all struggling with right now of figuring out the exact formula of how to do this. And, uh, but that's one of the things that really keeps me up at night when I hear the things that are reported at Huddle. Yeah. And for our listeners, I would just aim you towards three prior podcasts this year that were all really about violent behavior and complex behavior management uh, at Mayo Clinic and some of the steps that we've been able to take in different locations. Boy, we could talk with you for a long time. I told you that at the beginning, and it's it's really wonderful to hear your thoughts, but we do need to get to one big important question. So many of our listeners are at organizations that have read about huddles, they've thought about them, but they maybe haven't started them yet. So you've just kind of gone through a reset. What would be your best advice to an organization that wants to start work on this area this year? I have a couple of thoughts on that. And of course, take this with how much salt you would like. I would say first and foremost, figure out your own problem to solve and whether or not the huddle is the right tool to solve that problem. The literature on huddles is highly varied. Huddles are used in different organizations in different ways to solve different problems. So I would say don't try to sell a huddle to your organization as this was used by X you know, team or organization without 
a cell of this is the problem we want to solve and why we think a huddle would use it. You may inadvertently trigger comparisons between your organization and some other organization. Then people are not thinking about the problem you want to solve. So keep it local, solve your own problem and figure out how a huddle could help you there. And then the next thing I would say, which I've said a couple of times already, is keep it short. A short and tightly run huddle can get a lot of things done. We started off a little longer and we've worked on it over time. So I'm not going to say we started off with a tight, you know, 15 minutes and we were perfect at the beginning. No, of course not. Be willing to iterate and improve in constant PDSA cycles. But in the end, achieving a short, efficient huddle with the right people at the table can accomplish a lot and get that trust and communication in the system. It doesn't have to go too long. These people are busy. They need to get back to the front line, taking care of patients, taking care of their work units. And if they think this huddle is going to go too long, I think attendance is going to start to drop. You're going to get less engagement because people need to get back to the front line. So a short, tightly run huddle that's effective and efficient while still paying attention to that culture of safety. That's where you want to get to, in my opinion, so that you keep attendance high, engagement high, and get the work done. Wow. You've just given our listeners a lot of great ideas and recommendations. So much of what you've shared has certainly spoken to the practicalities of how do you actually get this done, probably through hard-earned lessons there. I'm just going to bring listeners back to a thought again about the problem that you were working on really was fundamentally one of safety culture and safety culture is people, you know, it's the people I couldn't help as I was thinking about what this conversation was going to sound like and thinking about your work there. I thought of a book that I read a number of years ago by U.S. Navy Captain L. David Marquette. The name of the book was called Turn the Ship Around. And in it, he had his own leadership challenge. And he kind of describes how he changed his leadership style and the leadership style of the crew. Really, it's a fascinating story of transformation with a lot of lessons for all of us. But early in the book, there was a line that he penned. It's kind of stuck with me these years, which I think is right on with this particular topic. The ship that he started commanding had an unfortunate record of a lot of errors and very poor culture and morale. That's not very well tolerated in the nuclear Navy, by the way. That's a big problem when you have a big ship with big nuclear missiles that is not operating well. So as he and his leadership team kind of struggled to clarify their goals for improvement, it started off with, well, let's reduce errors. But where they ultimately ended was achieve excellence, don't just avoid errors. They recognized that to really achieve excellence, which yes, involves safety, but it involves the culture of the organization, they were going to have to really focus on that culture. And I think You've just given a beautiful description of an intervention that is multifaceted. You're building leaders in the process. You're building knowledge and relationships in the process, and you're solving problems together, and you're enabling people further and further out in the organization to get things done without always having to trickle up and then a work order and all the bureaucratic inefficiencies. So thank you for that discussion. Any last words for our listeners? I have talked about safety huddles in different ways. Sherry mentioned the black hole. So I've talked about using the safety huddle and other things to solve the black hole problem. You know, people need to trust that things are going to be fixed after the fact. I've also called it safety huddles, the je ne sais quoi, the I don't know what, because the literature is so varied on what are safety huddles and what you can use to solve with them. There doesn't seem to be any one right way to do it or one right, one wrong way to do it necessarily. 
but some key principles that I described in solving your own problem seems to really help. So I wish I could tell you, oh, here's the seminal paper that says exactly how to do your huddle and, and everything about it. We didn't really find that. But on the other hand, we thought this is a great framework and tool to solve our own problems, fixing the black hole problem, working on our culture, fixing stuff as we go, you know, all of those things were really important to us. So thank you so much for letting oh. me be here and talk about safety huddles. I could great do this work. all day. Well, thank and, you and for your leadership work. too. Yes. yes. Thank you so much. So we've come to the end of our podcast and we're really glad you could join us. And we hope the information provided is insightful and valuable. Again, Mayo Clinic's Key into Quality podcast aims to help you take some of those first steps to address important quality challenges in your organization. The development of this podcast is part of our effort to be a valued resource to healthcare organizations that are striving to improve. And our goal is to improve quality for patients and the populations that we all serve. Please let us know if you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, please let others in your organization know about it. Rate us on your favorite podcast platform and give us feedback. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.